Yo, listen up. I've got an incredible event coming up in Bandera, Texas, Thursday, October 12th through Sunday, October 15th at Sovereignty Ranch. It's called Confluence, and it takes place during the Ring of Fire eclipse. This eclipse carries the frequency of love, harmony, connection, and balance. And let me tell you, when we all join together in community under this eclipse, we create the foundation for a massive shift. So come hang out. I'll be live podcasting with some other amazing speakers and friends like Kelly Brogan, Andrew Kaufman, Mickey Willis, Alex Zek, Amanda Vollmer, and Shiva Rose, amongst many others. So come get down with us as we shatter the illusion of authority, learn the true energetics of regenerative food, harness the healing power of holistic remedies, foundational skills, and of course, high vibes. Get your tickets and more info at confluence2023.com. And use the code STORY10 for 10% off the entry fee. And this discount is for tickets only, so it excludes glamping, camping, food packages, and so on. Again, that's confluence2023.com. And again, the date is Thursday, October 12th through Sunday, October 15th. I'll see you there. My friend, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm stoked to talk to you. This is great. So I know a little bit about, well, I guess before we talk about this, we're going to jump into all this stuff, but I have to just acknowledge where I'm at right now. I'm in your beautiful home in Texas. We're in your ceremony. Is that what you call it? Cere- yeah, the ceremony room. Ceremony room. Lo- the loft for short. It <laughs> technically is a loft. I think it's, I wa- immediately walked in and I just felt like, ah, oh, it's just like the best place to have a conversation on it for a podcast, especially when you're walking into someone's space, you kind of like, all right, what's the vibe going to be? What's it going to be like? Especially when there's cameras and equipment and it can feel kind of artificial when I'm used to just connecting to people on a more like private basis with patients. So tell me about this room. I want to, I want to know about it. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, this is not going to be my permanent studio. We're just, we have to build it somehow and find space for it in here. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's funny because when I record podcasts, whether I, we do it here and I'm the guest in this case, or I have people on as you were on my show, they're really the kind of conversations I like to have. And so when we were trying to find a place in the house that would be suitable to record and film podcasts, I thought, well, where do I have the most meaningful conversations when we have guests? And it's sitting in these two chairs, just like we are. Uh, when we bought this house, this space was, um, I don't, they kind of used it as a flex room, right? There was just, I don't know, random furniture. It didn't, it didn't appear to have any real purpose, but we knew right when we walked in here, man, if we get this place, this is going to be our ceremony room, which to us could mean a number of different things. Um, typically, this is where I'll do my morning breath work and we often meditate together, my wife, Allison, and I. Um, this is where we play music. You see guitars and drums around and stuff. So this is kind of the music room. And and all of the furniture is is kind of low profile. So it's very loungy. And there's all these Moroccan and Turkish rugs. And it's it's just cozy up here. Mm-hmm. And it, um, it's the most spacious feeling because it's on the second floor. And for those that can't see over the edge here, yeah. you know, it overlooks kind of the open space of the house. So it's just... It's like our little tree fort, you know, yeah. and I envision getting many more plants. We just got this furniture recently and just putting tons of plants up here and just having it be a little jungle atrium full of oddities from around the world. And that area over there is is really my wife's altar. She's a shaman. And um, 
So she does all kinds of strange things over there. I don't know exactly what she's doing, but there's burning of things and prayers and animal feathers and all kinds of rattles happening. And, you know, that's where, that's where she does her, you know, her practices yeah. and stuff t- together, but also on her own. Yeah. So I think the energy of this room is conducive to having meaningful conversations. It is. I feel it energetically. And we, well, I'll definitely have your wife on separately to talk all about her work because I'm fascinated by that. Uh, so stay tuned, everybody, to listen to this. But I want to jump into, I know a little bit about your story of just going through drugs, addiction, and like, finding your path to wellness but people don't know not everybody knows your story what was going on then tell tell, take me back to that time and what led you to where you're at today yeah you know it's it's interesting well because being a person i mean i don't closely identify myself as like i'm in recovery i'm a sober person um but for all intents and purposes yeah i'm free of the addictions that used to really plague me but part of that journey that I'm sort of coming full circle to now is, and I will answer the question going back to kind of how it started, but where I am now and why I'm more enthusiastic about talking about it, I'm not that I was ever not willing to talk about it, but there's a, a self-identification phase, uh, at least in my case, of, of an alcoholic, an addict that gets sober. And because you're clinging to your very existence, which was the case for me because I was terribly addicted and and extremely ill in so many ways that you really become identified as someone like, I'm a sober person, right? Like how long you've been sober? I'm two years, I'm five years, I'm 10 years. And part of the 12-step model and all of that um, is really based around that being your tether to your, your survival, right? And so there was a long period of time where so much of my life was focused on recovery and all the various recovery programs and things I was doing to heal spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically. Um, And then at a certain point, I saw that I had become, not in a negative way, but just I was expanding, right? I was becoming more dynamic and, um, and just spreading my wings. And then I found it to be kind of just, maybe I was tired of talking about it, but also somewhat of a limiting self-identity as like, oh, I'm a former addict and that's kind of my backstory. And so I just kind of left it alone and I moved on to different things and um, didn't spend a lot of time speaking about it. But recently, I think um, now 25 years into this journey, I got sober when I was 26, um, I'm seeing that there are many people still suffering particularly with addiction, especially in the the era of the past three years that we've gone through, right? And so I've kind of discounted the value that I have to contribute from that perspective of really going through the trenches of addiction and um, finding my way out and not only finding my way out, but creating a life that is um, thriving and helping so many people through the work that I do, Mm -hmm. hopefully at least, (laughs) you know, that's the feedback I get. Uh, so now I'm, I'm kind of having a full circle moment where I'm going, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't have discounted my, my experience um, so much. And, and I think that I could have the opportunity to be of service by, by delving into that a little bit more because it's one of those things when you, when you get out of it, and at least in my case, you surround yourself with other people that share that plight, right? And you support one another. I mean, that's the value in the 12-step model, so much in community and the unconditional love and support and mm-hmm. um, spending your time with people that have been where you've been and they really understand you mm-hmm. in ways that people that have not had that experience can't understand. 
There's a camaraderie there. There's a bond there that's palpable, it's real, and it's so supportive. But then as you become more independent and, and mature, and that just becomes kind of part of who you are, you're someone who's not addicted to drugs anymore and has um, hopefully some sort of spiritual relationship to your life, you kind of forget about the other people that are still out there suffering. Mm -hmm. it, it's this self-referential point of view. And you think, well, when I, got so this, when I got sober, I thought everyone did. I remember being shocked, right? I'd go to a concert or something, everyone's smoking weed. I'm like, what? People still do this? You know? <laughs> Is that a self thing? Because yeah, you're also, you know, it's one of the attributes to many addicts. It was in my case is being very self-centered, right? Um, because you have to be that way in order to survive and maintain that kind of lifestyle when you're in active addiction. So over the years, you know, I just kind of developed this point of view that we don't need to talk about that anymore. I've overcome that and there's not a lot of value in it. So anyway, I'm, I'm finding value in it now. And also um, just reinvigorating my appreciation by acknowledging that. I think it was a couple of weeks ago, I was actually having a, a ceremony of sorts here with my wife and we we're just having a really heart-centered conversation. And um, it was just the way that she said it in the moment. It's like we were, I get, I get emotional sometimes talking about it because I'm, I have so much gratitude for, for my life and who I've become. Yeah. And, you know, we, did, we had moved in this house some time ago and it worked really hard to make it a home, you know, and... Um, she looked at me and she said, God, Luke, just look. Look how far you've come. Yes. Look what you've accomplished. Like, look. Look at how you've changed, how you've evolved. And I'm always just kind of looking at the next thing, right? I'm yeah. ah, still kind of, you know, I'm eating too much sugar. <laughs> I, I'm still chewing the nicotine gum. You know, there's always kind of the next hurdle that I think I need to overcome, you know. Yeah. And it was a really profound moment of just going, Wow. For some reason, I had objectivity in that moment because it was being reflected by someone that I know and yeah. trust and yeah. love. And it was just like, holy shit, wow, I really have lived some life. Yeah. And there is, um, and there is uh, an immense amount of, of earned wisdom in, in that, you know? And so it, it's something I'm That's kind beautiful. of leaning back into now. But I mean, for me, it's, I think, kind of a typical, at least based on my experience and hearing the experience of those that share my, 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 my life journey. Uh, you know, I experienced a lot of trauma when I was a kid and, um, you know, divorced parents and just sexual abuse and just a family lineage. God bless them all. And I, I love them all and have so much compassion for, you know, my parents and all of my caregivers. But our family lines on both sides have a long history of alcoholism and trauma and just dysfunction and just craziness, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and many of us have now turned the corner, my parents included, my brothers, and we're, we're on a path and all is well. But, you know, that's where I came out of. And it was also, um, I grew up in the 70s in the Bay Area. And there were a lot of drugs in the Bay Area. You know, at the end of the 60s, the Haight-Ashbury movement kind of fizzled out as hard drugs infiltrated the psychedelic movement. And a lot of the hippies kind of um, moved into the more remote areas, which is where I lived. And so there were a lot of biker gangs and you know, just kind of ex-hippies. There were a lot of drugs. So you have a kid who's experiencing a lot of trauma. There's no way to hold that or process that. No one knows what trauma is. No one even knew about most of the trauma I experienced because I shamefully kept it hidden and didn't disclose it. And so you have the perfect storm of 
uh, traumatized, confused, alone kid um, that has access to a lot of drugs. And so I became addicted to drugs at a really young age and um, moved to Hollywood when I was 19. And just, you know, that's, that's when I, you know, they really took the limits off because I had no supervision at all at that point, you know. And, and I actually had a really good time for a little bit. Um, I was playing music. I was in bands and, you know, wanted to be a rock star and all that stuff that drives many of us from the, from the country or suburbs into Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And essentially by the time I was 26, I just had completely destroyed what little life I had and, um, and just hit a moment of just a classic, what I call a subterranean bottom. You know, it's like if you're an addict, you hit bottom, right? And there's, you lose your job, there's a divorce, you, you get in an accident, you get arrested, you get beat up. Things like that happen, and um, you know they happen in succession. That type of thing, you yeah. Know? And I just think, okay, this time I'm going to turn it around, and I just never could, you know. And I just finally reached a point where I conceded to my innermost self that I could not help myself, mm. that my willpower was absolutely useless, wow. and I was trapped, and I was I was in an immense amount of pain, and and I was just suffering on an ongoing basis, and had so much chaos and drama in my life. I mean, it was just like such a miserable existence because I have this underlying trauma that I'm not even aware of as being the issue, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm seeing my life and the consequences of my, my drug use and alcohol. I mean, just throw it all in there at once. I was addicted to pretty much every drug you can imagine. Um, like physically addicted and, and all the things. And um, it always seemed like the drugs are the problem because that's kind of the, the catalyst for all of the drama. And then the, the <laughs> real rude awakening for me was when I finally succumbed to the fact that I couldn't help myself and I checked into rehab and became deeply committed to a, a recovery program. But that's when all of the emotional trauma and all of the dysfunction really came to the surface because I was unable to anesthetize myself essentially, right? Yeah. I mean, I couldn't drink it or Numb snort it. it or smoke it away. Yeah. And thus began... Um, you know, my spiritual journey and also the journey of physical healing and, and yeah. getting into what now I can't stand the word biohacking because I think of the body as a beautiful, holistic living being and not something that should or needs to be hacked. Mm-hmm. But um, I can't think of a better term yeah. and that's what people know now. But, you know, I got into detoxing and saunas and like we were speaking about earlier, making kombucha and <laughs> fasting. And, oh yeah, all the late 90s kind of health, you know, yeah. alternative health stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, and I started just on that path. And now it's been, you know, 25 years of just being deeply committed to being as whole and healthy as I can. And in the past few years, I've been able to turn that into, um, you know, a business of sorts and, yeah. and, and make my living doing essentially what I would be doing anyway yeah, and what right. I was doing for the first 20 years. You yeah, know? Right. Um, and then I had my day jobs in Hollywood and did all kinds of interesting creative things. But uh, I'm committed to my spiritual evolution and and in order to do that, one also, uh, in my experience, has to have the vitality and yeah. energy to do it. Right, beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So you mentioned being at this point where you knew in and of your own willpower not being able to do that, which maybe to someone who doesn't know about addiction or how the you know, 12-step program works, that seems kind of counter... It's countercultural in many ways to our culture. No, it's it's a willpower thing. You just have to do it. So, can you explain that? And I know so much of this, the traditional twelve step program has to do with the higher power. And you mentioned the spirituality. Did you have a 
spiritual background to begin with? Or was that sort of the awakening that this is the path to overcoming this? I would say prior to that surrender experience when I got sober, I could have been classified as an atheist. Um, No, not atheist, agnostic. I wasn't like in denial that there was a God. I just wasn't really interested and had no reason to be. But toward the end, and I I didn't grow up with religion or anything like that. However, there were what I see now as karmic touch points throughout my life where I had glimpses that there was something there. Um, The first one being when I was around eight years old, my mom, who was born and raised in Berkeley and pretty progressive in her thinking, uh, took me to an ashram in Oakland um, to what's called a darshan, like a spiritual gathering for a, um, a swami there named Muktananda from India. And he's quite well known in, in those circles. And I remember as a kid, I really enjoyed that. And there was something there, you know, that really got my attention. I mean, even as an adult, I've asked my mom about it because, you know, now I've read his books and really ventured into a lot of that Eastern mm-hmm. mysticism and whatnot. And she said, yeah, you were just totally enamored with him and the whole experience. And I, and I, and I think now what happened was there was um, a spiritual energy, a Shaktipat that imprinted me. And there was some sort of ancient memory at eight years old that was like, huh, bookmark this. We're going to get back to the trauma and soon to the drugs, but there's something here. So there was a little curiosity there. And then in the period when I was addicted to drugs and living in Hollywood and just living a maniacal self-destructive lifestyle, um, some members of my dad's side of the family had begun pilgrimages to India to um, spend time at an ashram of another guru there named uh, Satya Sai Baba. And they would come back with all the accoutrement and the beads and the photos and the vibhuti ash and all of these fantastic stories of miracles being performed, these uh, cities as they're called. And I knew that my two aunts in particular, I knew that they were A, not dishonest people, and that they were also sane. And so when they would come back with these stories, I remember just being really intrigued by sort of this supernatural um, phenomenon that they would experience there. And so they brought me back a couple books and they would sit on the coffee table next to there when, you know, I mean, really, and I'd have it there and I'm like, there's something there. I just intuitively knew there's something there. And, wow. you know, I don't know that I, I don't think I ever tried to meditate or do yoga, but I was just kind of having this very subtle draw to that kind of, that lineage of teaching specifically, yeah. um, the Indian, the Indian folks. And, um, and, and shortly before I got sober, um, and so I had never, as I said, been to church or prayed or had any kind of spiritual leanings. But at one point I was so desperate. And I, I remember I went to my mom's um, over a Christmas break, probably around 1996. And I had been strung out on heroin, which for anyone who's experienced that is, is no party. And when you try to quit, it's, it gets dark. <laughs> I would not advise it. But I wanted to, speaking of, you know, willpower, I was like, I'm going to go up to my mom's and I pretended like I had the flu because the symptoms of opiate withdrawal are very similar to the flu um, in conjunction with the most suicidal depression you've ever experienced at the same time. And um, she knew that it wasn't the flu and just kind of played along. But I remember there was one point I had a picture of this Indian guru Mm. in a little book and I brought that with me and I sat in the room next to what would have been my bedroom and I started praying to this this saint you know mm-hmm. and just saying like oh, you got to get me out of here 
I, I can't do this anymore. I can't help myself. And I, and I prayed to that, you know, that, that, uh, that guru and, um, and then went home and immediately got back on drugs. But shortly after that, um, did reach a point where my own willpower was totally useless. And then I made the call and I, and I had myself checked into rehab. And at that point, um, the only option I was given for relief checking into rehab was to pray. And I was like, well, I did it once and it didn't seem to have worked, <laughs> you know, at least not immediately. Yeah. Um, and, but they wouldn't give me Dilaudid or anything that would have been you know, more to my liking. They said, you know, just go to your room and, and pray for your higher power to relieve your obsession for drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And, I, and I was left with no choice. And so I did that. And, and something, you know, really profound and absolutely miraculous happened, although it was subtle and took me some time to unpack it. And I, I, the first day there, it would have been February 16th, 1997. Um, from that moment on, till this day sitting here with you, I never have ever once had a craving for drugs or alcohol. And I've never even remotely considered it as an option. Wow. That was followed by you know, 20 years of <laughs> vigorous work in the 12 steps and, and by other means and yeah. all sorts of spiritual exploration. But you know, the initial surrender and the... What I see now is just a, a humbling of myself and a teachability and a um, sub, subjugation of my ego, right? Of just like, I mean, just total defeat as a human, just absolute despair and, and hopelessness. And, you know, the gift in that being, I was open-minded to consider that there might be something out there that could help me because I was so thoroughly convinced that I could not help myself. And it's not like I hadn't tried. I mean, I tried to quit drugs countless times right and balance you know doing what i've heard referred to aptly as switching seats in the titanic just like i'm just going to smoke weed or i'm just going to drink beer Got or it. whatever and and inevitably time after time i would end up doing all the things all the time yeah um you know and it's it's really I, a miracle that i actually survived a lot of the experiences and situations that i put myself into i've heard people say that phrase california sober which i didn't know was a thing that's what you're saying right <laughs> it, it wouldn't have worked for me yeah yeah i i try, i attempted that because i i love smoking weed mm -hmm. i mean i don't use cannabis now i take cbd and stuff but i accidentally actually a couple months ago um ate a, a gummy out here in texas they have like different rules for thc and cbd and stuff like that my friend gave me like this what i thought was a cbd gummy has some delta eight or nine thing or you know that's legal and he said just take a half you know you might feel it and i'm like i take cbd all the time no big deal and i took the whole gummy it was like 10 in the morning and within an hour and a half i was high as shit I, I was sitting there trying to do email and stuff and i just was like oh this i don't like email i don't feel like working at all <laughs> Anyway, long story short, within, you know, a half an hour, I realized what had happened. And wow. I came to my wife and I was like, babe, like I'm straight journeying right now. Like I am in like a medicine journey, which is a whole other topic because yeah. I have um, to, to great benefit worked with psychedelics and plant medicines over the past few years in, in my sobriety. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I, I love smoking weed, which I found out I don't anymore, by the way. That's the point of that story yeah. is like cannabis, we're done. It does not agree with me at all. I felt horrible. But that was the one thing I could never let go of, speaking of California sober. So yeah. I tried that so many times, like weed is cool. If I can just smoke weed, I can function and I can ease my pain 
and I can be in my body and live in the skin that I'm in with some semblance of peace. But every time I attempted to do that, I would end up being unable to resist taking other drugs, Mm -hmm. you know? And so that's for me, the path of complete abstinence from all mind altering chemicals was, was the path that I took for probably 22 years until I eventually was led to work with ayahuasca. Got it. A few years back. Got it. So you, you were in that moment of surrender. You, would you say you found God at that point, someone that was agnostic, but it was like a real knowing at that point. Is that fair to say? No. You know, I think what, what I did realize was that, <laughs> you know, on day three through 28 or whatever, holy shit, I'm sober. I don't know that I equated it to that. Mm. I probably at the time equated it to, I'm sequestered at this remote rehab in Northern California. There's no liquor store that I could walk to. I'm really out there in the woods. Um, So I probably would have just chalked it up to that. Well, I've made a decision to be here. I'm not going to leave. They Mm -hmm. keep your money if you leave. It was like (laughs) $10,000, you know? Practical stuff. That my mom thankfully loaned me. but what, one thing that was really actually telling when I started going, huh, what's happening here is when, when my mom came and picked me up, I remember when we got back toward the town, it was in a town called Sebastopol, which incidentally is where I began using drugs at nine or 10 years old or whatever it was. Wow. So full circle, I'm back in Sebastopol in a rehab, but she picks me up. I made it to 28 days. I'm still sober. I've com- complied with all suggestions given. And I remember driving down the road and we passed a gas station that, was also, that also sold alcohol. And I remember having the thought, oh shit. It's the first time I'd seen alcohol in 28 days and I had gone years without mm-hmm. taking one day off alcohol. I drank every day to being wasted drunk every day. I never ever in my whole life had two beers. Always hammered from the minute I picked up the first one. Mm-hmm. And I remember having the thought, I could just tell her I have to go to the bathroom right now. I could go in and buy a 40 ounce or go in the bathroom and chug it. And it was just like that muscle memory of like, that's what I would have done in the past, right? Is just find a way to get comfortable because it's just so uncomfortable being me because of all that unprocessed pain. And, uh, and so it was a fleeting thought, just a second, you know, and I looked at it and I was like, no desire, nothing. Even if I had been alone anywhere, you know, just no. And that, I think that was the first clue that, huh, something has definitely happened. I don't know that I directly correlated it to me getting on my knees and praying, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's just like, what? That did it? It was still hard to believe. But what's really interesting to me to this day is to not dismiss that act of prayer that day. something happened. And so the, the interest and the intrigue of my life is like, that thing that happened, whatever did that, what if I had more of that? What if I could avail more of my, my will, frankly, to that, that, that intelligence, to that love mm-hmm. that we call divinity or God or source, whatever, whatever label one wants to attribute to that force, that energy. And so it's been over the years, so motivating, you know, is that one touch point. I have that one anchor. I was doing a thing. Then I did this one thing and everything changed forever. You know, there's a lot of work on the backside of that. Of course, I'm not saying, oh, I prayed once and I was cured. I mean, I really was very committed to my recovery. But you felt a shift. Yeah. Yeah. And and so to me, it's, it's, it was so beautiful to have that very clear, 
undeniable change in my experience because now uh, over the years as I've been accustomed to applying that same level of open-mindedness and willingness and humility to other troubles in my life, right? It's like relationship problems, career problems, taxes, <laughs> COVID, whatever, you know, anything in my life that I'm, that I'm meeting with resistance, <laughs> excuse me, um, anything that I'm finding challenging, anything I'm struggling with. Mm-hmm. And it's funny too, that after all these years of, of living what I consider to be a, a pretty damn committed life spiritually. I mean, I, I'm really a devout person, not to a religion, but just to, to divinity itself and, and all of its expressions. I still, to this day, sometimes try to solve my own problems using my intellect or my, the sheer force of my will, yeah. you know? And it brings me back um, to that moment, it's like, Luke, well, man, nothing could have touched your problem at that point except a power greater than yourself. And part of it's the internal power because we're part of God. You know, I don't believe that God's out there in the, yeah. in the clouds and I'm over here, this lonely lost soul that's separate from that. It's, it's more about identifying and acknowledging that, that I'm just as a person called Luke Story at this, in this lifetime, um, an expression of consciousness or an expression of God. So it's more about just remembering who I am, right? right? And, and not using the small self, the limited self to butt up against the difficulties that, that we all face in life, right? So that right. moment is, is always the touch point for me. It's like, no, this thing works, whether you call it prayer, whatever one's relationship to divinity is, mm-hmm. the acknowledgement of it and the submitting to it, not as a punishing God, but submitting to it as the ultimate force of love. But that's, that's the secret to my whole life, you know? Yeah. And so, so that was really the, the beginning of it. And then, so that was the first clue. And after that clue revealed itself in that miraculous and totally unexpected um, sobriety, you know, my liberation from, from the bondage of addiction, wow. it's just like, God, what else is there to do in life? Yeah. If something can do that, I have to pursue that and I have right. to get to know that as a working part of my, of my life, not, not even um, a compartmentalized like, oh, I'm going to go do the spiritual thing over here or do the God thing or the church yes. thing or the ashram thing. But what if my actual life could become a prayer? Yes. What if I could become so devotional that having a conversation with you is an expression of my prayer? It's my prayer to you. It's my prayer to myself. It's my prayer to anyone listening. Yeah. You know, to really broaden my context of yeah. what it means to live a spiritual life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like um, making your life a prayer, making your life a meditation or, you know, I think there's so much example. I, I, I you and I, I, we're just meeting for the first time today, but I <laughs> live my life the same way. Like every interaction I have with the patient is like this sacred opportunity, yeah. right? To like, hold space for somebody and like just and have that moment, which is a sacred thing. And it, you can make the mundane magical. And people just, we, so many of us, like I'm constantly root, rooting myself, but we, so many of us squander so many beautiful magical moments that in my opinion, God gives us and works through yeah. us. Yeah. And you know what, what keeps it fun for me, Will, is that I often forget. <laughs> yeah, know? and that's okay too. Right? Yeah, it's like and, and so there's there's a um, you know an element of just humor in it for me because even so many touch points of of proof, you know, of just okay, there's a thing, there's a thing, and when I align with it, 
there's synchronicity. There's, there's magic, there's synchronicity, um, problems dissolve. There are truly miraculous experiences ongoing yeah. throughout my life. You know, the more committed that I've been to the path. Yet, you know, the inertia of my, my perceived um, free will you know, just living a life, especially a life that was like so deeply embedded in survival for so long. Mm-hmm. There are still times when I just totally forget and I find myself having an interaction and I'm, I'm not present or I'm trying to solve one of my own problems with my own limited resources or whatever yeah. the case may be. And to me, that's the thing that keeps it fun. Yeah. And that's the thing that keeps me, hopefully keeps me humble. Yeah. You know, that's You're like, not, wow. not some elevated being, right? Yeah. And, you know, I've had, especially in the realm of psychedelics, I mean, I've had non-dual experiences and just truly supernatural <laughs> not not a belief but a faithful experience of god that's absolutely undeniable and i'm and i've experienced in those moments that oh my god i'm going to be changed forever i'm always going to be just like this right mm-hmm. and you know whatever the peak experience is whether it's been with psychedelics or meditation or breathwork or whatever and then that peak experience subsides and, and one realizes, well, I'm still a guy in a body with a wife and a house and a job. And, you know, I'm, I'm here for a reason. So I, I don't have to have the expectation on myself that I become an exalted spiritual master or enlightened being, right? It's the householder approach where hopefully over time I, I can remain connected to that part of myself but also still operate here in the human realm yeah. and, and not find fault with the fact that I'm here or that I'm still very human and I have so many imperfections yeah. yet and, and really just loving on those imperfections yes. and, and loving on the mistakes and loving on the ways in which I still think in a limited capacity or uh, ways in which I'm emotionally immature what, or grandiose or whatever, right? Like name a character flaw, like, yeah. wow, how beautiful that I still have all of that. Yet, at the same time, I also have a very tactile, tangible, real relationship with God. Yeah. So it's the human and the being. Yeah. It's, it's, dude, that's a fun life. It is a fun you life. You know, it's like acknowledging and exploring the mystical and, and finding ways to integrate. I think that's the word I'm looking for, integration. Yes. Finding ways to integrate that into walking the dog. Yeah. Filling up the car with gas, yeah. recording a podcast, <laughs> you know, just keeping it real. Yeah. Keeping it real, being down to earth, but also knowing that like within the being down to earth, there's magic in every moment. Yeah. If I can remain present to it. What do you say to somebody that they're hearing us talk about God and spirituality? You know, there's a lot of baggage and stigma around that. And they think, wow, I thought I was listening to a wellness podcast. Yeah, I thought I was yeah. learning from a functional medicine doctor. And I, mean, I don't know if you could talk about like, the research around things we're talking about too and how it impacts people's health quality, right? They, oh, people man. tend to live longer, healthier lives when they tap into this. What do you say to the skeptic out there that's like, eh, I'm fine with, that's not a thing for me. Like I'll, I'll take the supplements. I'll do the biohacks. I'll eat the certain way. I'll work out. But this spirituality stuff's not for me. Well, that's a, that's a really good question. And I think in, in my particular case, I was fortunate because I was really, uh, well, I had painted myself into a corner. I mean, I didn't want to become a spiritual person. I want to do drugs and be a rock star and, and have sex with a lot of women. I mean, those were my life goals, you know, yeah. at that stage of my life. Um, 
So it wasn't something that I chose or aspired to being. And, you know, I would say had a fairly strong aversion to, I mean, especially Orthodox religion and, 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 and the approach to God that requires an intermediary of another person telling me how to do it kind mm-hmm. of thing, you know? Um, so I was fortunate in that, like, I was really left with no other options, you know? So I would say if someone is like, experience and aversion aversion to the things that I'm talking about. I don't think that everyone needs to be spiritual, right? It's, it's a calling. It's, it's something where you feel um, a certain level of even just dis, mild dissatisfaction with your life. Your life is lacking a sense of purpose and meaning and you feel that your existence is somehow finite and that kind of the material world is all there is to it. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I personally believe that eventually, because I'm quite certain that reincarnation is a thing of reality, that um, we're given the opportunity to have free will. And it's like, oh God, how do I say this in a way that's not too esoteric and far out? I don't know. There's no other way to say it. My experience is that consciousness, okay, just remove the word God, consciousness itself is an infinite source of life and energy. But because there's really only one thing, which is consciousness, that's all any of this is, Mm -hmm. right? Beyond our senses, within our senses, consciousness, God, seeks to express itself so it can know itself. Yeah. It's like, if there was nothing but you, you wouldn't know there was a you because all there is is you. Okay, I'm probably going to lose a few people here. And maybe some people are going like, yeah, duh, we know non-duality, okay? So whether or not as, an, as a single expression or a, a single focal point of consciousness as God, as me as a person, whether or not I seek to go back to my source doesn't matter to the source. Because eventually, no matter how, say it's like a tapestry, right, of consciousness, and I'm one little thread in one lifetime, it's up to me when and if I return back to that source. And so we each have that gift of free will. But I think the game here of being born into a human body onto planet Earth is that we're given hints and seeds and some inkling of attraction that guides us back to from where we came, which Mm -hmm. is the source of consciousness, the source of life itself or God. To me... That is a very curious idea. I'm just wired that way, right? But I had to become wired that way because my finite materialistic view of the world of living really like an animal just in survival mode and just living in a world of competition and scarcity in a a much lower state of consciousness, like that wouldn't have been interesting to me. But for people listening that are like, oh, a few of those points are interesting, but I'm meeting this resistance because I... I had a negative experience in Catholic school or, you know, my parents hit me over the head with the Bible or whatever, right? Yeah. They wanted me to become a rabbi and I didn't want that. So I became a punk rocker or lesbian <laughs> or whatever, you know, it's like, <laughs> I get that. But what, what I would encourage, and I really don't care who believes in God or not, it's none of my business, but I would encourage finding miracles in your life mm. that are outside of your influence. And one of those to me, that's always a great touch point is just observe the phenomenon of going to sleep every night and notice that there's something 
if that's making your heart beat, you know, mm-hmm. to me, that's fascinating. What is that? Why don't you just die when you lay down and fall? Like, why am I not dead the next morning? Yeah, right. Why what's, is it, what's doing that? Yeah. Right. What you go out and you plant an acorn, and in fifty years you have this massive oak tree. Out of what? Where did that come from? Yeah. What is what is the manifest? Yeah. Right. If we we're all like very, we easily believe in in the manifest, right? In the material world, we see it. Oh yeah, it's there. Now it's a it's a tree. Yeah, my heart's beating. Yeah, but why? What's behind yeah. that? What's the unmanifest behind the manifest? Like, yeah. what's the wave prior to the particle? I mean, if people are scientifically minded, like, man, come at it from quantum physics. Well, that's what I was going to tell much of what, what you're what's saying. What's the field, right? Yeah. Like, okay, we see the particle coming out of the field. What's the field itself? Yeah. And who's running it? Where does that energy come from? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, as you were talking about the sort of concept of non-duality and dimensions, it's so much of it's being pointed to in quantum physics, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like people are being. I feel like science is catching up with antiquity in many ways. Like, yeah, right. Like we didn't. But these. Can you talk about sort of the? We hear the phrase yogic science and the science of Kundalini. There's there's an ancient science or art to a lot of these Eastern mystical practices. Can you talk a little bit about people? Because I know that's part of your. Yeah, I practice. mean, here, here's the thing: is it's fundamentally understood by both nonlinear and linear <laughs> predominant people that everything is energy, right? Everything is energy. And so over the course of time, and I, you know, I'm no historical scholar on all of the ancient practices and, and um, you know, philosophies and whatnot, but one thing that I found fundamentally universal is that no matter what sort of system you're looking at, from whatever continent, whatever indigenous peoples that have developed systems around communing with God, they fundamentally and universally are built around the fundamental principle that there is this source of energy there that's available to us, this life force, this prana, this chi, and that there are things that you can do through your thoughts, through your feelings, or with your physical body that can help facilitate mm-hmm. that energy into your life in, in tangible ways. And an easy way to see this, I mean, now breath work is ubiquitous and thank God for that. There's a great app, by the way, for anyone listening that's kind of breath work curious. It's called Othership. Mm. Uh, I use it almost every day. It's just amazing because breath work is one of those things. It's like, oh, I'm going to do it today. And it's like, well, kind of like working out. I mean, it's yeah. not called breath work for nothing. <laughs> And I practiced kundalini yoga for a number of years and did teacher training, probably eight years or something. And, and I would have these, I mean, these transcendent experiences and sometimes quite psychedelic experiences. Yeah, the holotropic breath work. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and just, you know, having uh, spontaneous trauma healing, just crying or just hysterical laughter. I mean, really altered states of consciousness. And, you know, now you don't have to go wear a white turban and, you know, join a kundalini yoga sect in order to experience this. But it's, it's very obvious and very tangible that if you breathe in certain ways and move your body in certain ways and you adhere to these practices, no matter what lineage mm-hmm. uh, they, they are derived from, that you will have a physiological and emotional and a, and a mental change that is predominantly positive. Mm-hmm. And applying those practices to one's life with some degree of consistency over a period of time will change the way you think, feel, and act. Yeah. 
right? And, and then coupling that with some sort of philosophical framework that makes it all make sense. Yeah. For me, the, the teachings from the East and the teachings around non-duality, the, the Vedic sort of perspective has just always been where I resonate. But I also have many friends for whom they derive the same message from the Bible or the Torah. Um, it's all the same message. It's just like, what's your flavor, you know? And also yeah. I think there's a certain karmic hereditary element too. Like my wife, she's not interested in India stuff at all. She's interested in shamanism. She identifies with Native American traditions, with South American traditions, with Russian shamanism. I mean, you know, yeah. and I, I like that, but it's, it's not the thing that pulled me. Yeah. And, and I think it has something to do with, I mean, I've had sort of visions around this. I think I've lived a lot of lifetimes. I don't think. I know that I've lived a lot of lifetimes in India. And that, that's my, my mother, my home. I've been there. And when I went there, I was like, oh yeah, I know this place, right? Mm -hmm. I, I don't get that if I go to Brazil or Peru or yeah. wherever, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think it's fun to kind of, uh, it's like the word I'm looking for is charm. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a subtle charm because you can pick any of these systems of philosophy, these yeah. practices, and one's going to resonate with me and not the next person. It, it's like, Where's that, where's that hint of charm? It's just kind of like, huh, I think I want to go to that meditation class because that one teacher just, there's a feeling about them. There's, mm -hmm. there's something in the way they present this information, this universal mm -hmm. set of spiritual laws or principles. And, and I think there's a lot of validity in that. And to not try to force oneself in a box because that's what everyone else is doing or whatever. But even if you don't want to associate with any sort of philosophical framework or tradition, any kind of meditation, even if you just make it up, any kind of breathwork meditation, mm -hmm. anything that is intentionally devotional yeah. is going to produce the desired effect yeah. with some consistency and some level of commitment. And, and when you look at the research too, even if, like you said, even the practice itself, even if you're not ready for the philosophy around it, the research around somatic experiences, somatic practices, is which, which is what breathwork is, which is what yoga really is. It, studies have shown that really is supportive of metabolizing trauma and regulating the nervous system and supporting lowered inflammation levels, better brain health, better hormonal health. Um, so I, I'm fascinated to you saying that, and more and more people I talk to, and I feel the same way, the sort of esoteric connection, whether it's the Vedic tradition or your wife, it's the shamanic tradition. Can you kind of explain more for people that are newer to that interconnected this between all these different faith traditions, I guess is one way of saying it, but the really they're all reflecting light in their own way, but they're all part of the same diamond. Yeah. It's something that that's I, a great way to put it. It's like a deep, to me, it's like a, what the difference is between what we're talking about here and religion. It's like faith is fine, has a lot of benefits to it, but there's a difference between faith and belief and knowing and experience. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. the gap that a lot of people are in. They're, they're in just in the psychological. They're just in the theological. They're just in the mind, which is like my belief is right, your belief is not, versus sort of a deeper, I think, beneath the outer clothing that I think a lot of people within each of the, these faiths around the world have all talked about. Well, there's a couple really interesting points in there. Uh, the first one being, from my perspective, and why. 
I, I think, you know, I gravitate toward certain teachings more so than others, but I also see value in just about any valid mm-hmm. uh, framework of understanding. Mm-hmm. And that's that there are universal truths that are infinite, that are timeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the principles, right? They're, they're a truth that has always been true that will always be true. And so an easy accessible one would be the principle of love, right? Love is always good, right? Expressing and um, experiencing love is always positively beneficial, right? Mm-hmm. And so you could say from a Christian tradition, you know, to me, and I'm, we've got an expert over here, you know, in the realm of, of uh, Jesus, but from my understanding, has a lot to do with unconditional love. It's the expression mm-hmm. of love, right? And maybe in Buddhism, it's, it's, it's not expressed in the same way, but there's still an underlying fundamental principle. And I think I was fortunate in that my real entryway into exploring spirituality was through the 12 steps. And brilliantly, the 12 steps introduced spirituality in a non-fundamental way. I mean, it has its roots in Christianity, Mm -hmm. but in the 12 steps, it's made clear that the whole purpose of of that teaching itself is to, uh, A, help an alcoholic to achieve sobriety, and B, to have a spiritual experience. And the spiritual experience is actually what allows the sobriety to take place. But it's based on universal fundamental truths that could apply to really any religion or any yeah. like valid spiritual teaching. So love would be one, being of service to others, taking a moral inventory of oneself, being honest with oneself, really looking at who and what you are, mm-hmm. um, being willing to um, let go of character flaws that are deleterious to your life or the lives of those with whom you interact. Uh, making amends when you've harmed someone, not just saying sorry, but really correcting your errors as you go after that inventory. Yeah. The application of prayer, the application of um, meditation, a willingness to evolve, an open-mindedness, a humility. These are all the fundamental principles of the right. 12 steps, which are also the fundamental principles of most spiritual teachings and even at the core of most religions. If you, if you can kind of get through all of the metaphorical content and the historical content, yeah. right? What we're really dealing with are core principles. And what I think is really amazing is that without adopting any sort of belief system, and I'll get to the belief versus faith thing, without adopting any theological belief system, if anyone just gets a a basic understanding of what those principles are, how to spell them, the definition of each one. I mean, literally, I used to study these words in the dictionary, like willingness, what even is that? Humility, what? (laughs) And I would study and study and study. I mean, just those words, those principles, just to get an understanding of them, not so that I could have an intellectual prowess over my vocabulary, but I felt, and it proved itself to be true that if I had an intellectual understanding of what those core universal fundamental laws or truths are, then I would have a much better chance of actually applying them to my life. What's really cool is that without adopting any belief system, if any human being learns these fundamental principles from whatever lineage they choose 
and, and actually applies them and integrates them into their persona, into their mindset, into their emotional body, and even in some cases physical body, what happens is a change in your character is produced. That's the result. You start to change. You become less selfish and more giving. You become more honest. You become more fair. You become more willing to serve others and not just serve yourself. Those principles, when they're applied, raise your consciousness. That's the most simple way to say it. And back to your earlier question, how does this relate to our health? Higher states of consciousness means a higher state of coherence. And that coherence isn't just in your spirit and your mind. That coherence is relevant to the cells in your body, to your biology. What we're going for is coherence. When we go out of coherence, it's because we've drifted away from the fundamental universal truths that are the fabric of reality. And each of those principles is also inherently one aspect of the purity of divinity. It's how God expresses itself in our world Mm -hmm. is through truth, unchanging truth, undeniable truth, truth that you can't argue with. Is love a positive attribute? Period. It is. That's it. End of debate, right? Yeah. Is being honest. Um going to have a positive impact on your life. Yeah. If it's tempered, you know, with some kindness, of course. I mean, there's an honesty that could also be harmful if it's not applied with some wisdom. But these truths, that's all that that's all you need. And if 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 somebody I believe truly wants to be physically healthy, that that we have to have some relationship to these Mm -hmm. truths because there is so much there are so many uh, aspects of our life that distract us from that truth. And there's so much illusion. As, as much truth as there is in our experience, mm-hmm. there's an equal part of illusion. There's so many things that we believe, see, feel, think that are actually based in falsehood. Yeah. And it's just part of the, it's part of the cosmic joke of being incarnate as a human, right? Mm-hmm. We're so easily misled. And we also are so... Um, misguided by the fact that we're in a body that's essentially, well, not essentially, it's an animal, right? I have an animal body and also the capacity for higher states of consciousness that are evolved beyond a cow, a dog, a cat. I mean, some would argue with that, right? But we have this animal body that has animal needs. And then you have this prefrontal cortex strapped on that allows us to make nuclear weapons. You know, so the odds are really stacked against us because of, <laughs> because of the marriage of both of those parts of ourselves. Yeah. We have human needs and instincts and we're territorial and competitive and we have this egoic mind that's always trying to help the body survive. You know, so there's this inner battle, but the, the sword that cuts through all of that falsehood is the sword of truth and truth is principle, mm-hmm. right? And, and that is the touch point, the access point yeah. to God. And with the belief and faith, there were, there were many years where like, because of those experiences I had that I described earlier, where there was undeniable, irrefutable evidence that something had intervened in my life. So I believed that it existed, but I didn't believe in it. I didn't, I didn't have a faith that it would deliver you know, mm-hmm. according to my, my needs. 
right? And so that's an ongoing process. As I said, I forget sometimes. I'm trying to figure it out myself. And I go, oh, whoa, hold up. I'm leaving the most important uh, partner out of the equation here. It's my higher power, man. You know, it's called higher for a reason. it's, It's above and beyond. It's part of me, but it's also above and beyond my limited capacity as a person, as a man, right? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I have power. I can move mountains. We all can. But the source of that power is not solely derived from me. Yeah. And yeah. then my access to that power, in, in, in my experience, is, is solely possible and so simply possible. It's so simple mm-hmm. is through those principles, through yeah. adhering to those principles as best I can, as imperfectly as I do it. It works. And so that's what I begin to have a faith in. So I don't have to believe in a God or a system or a book or anything. Yeah. It's that I'm beginning over time more and more to trust that there's a relationship there. Yes. And, and it's, it's a reciprocal relationship where divinity and I serve one another. And, and the more that I align to that, I find that, um, you know, that the highest good, not only for me, but the highest good for all is served. And that's, that's kind of my guiding principle really is mm-hmm. in any decision, does this serve the highest good for, for um, totality, Yeah, right? Not just, hey, is this the way I'm going to get the biggest check or get what I want? Or, or am I going to um, subjugate myself and, and like people please and make sure Will gets what he wants, but then I suffer? Like, mm-hmm. what's, what's the highest minded choice that one can make in any given moment? And that's a really good barometer of making a decision. Mm-hmm. Do I feel intuitively this decision, this thought, this feeling, this act serves the highest good for all life? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And I think, I think you, t- you really brought a nuance that I think is important to say is that belief and faith for anybody in the early stages is, is a good starting point. It's a window into a pointer, if you will, a pointer into actions that will bring alignment into your life. But at a certain point, the Bible makes it, I've, in this analogy too, it's like the sort of the exoteric teachings of many faiths are like bread and milk, or I think is the, the food analogies they made, like basically baby food. But ultimately, as someone's faith and knowingness grows, it ends up being this sort of meat. And I think that's what you're, you, where you're at now and where people, I think of anybody, I think that our full wellness will be expressed whenever you get to that meat. Yeah. And you know, it's also, I think, kind of a fool's errand to try to have a holistic experience of health mm-hmm. by just addressing the physical part of who you are. Mm-hmm. It's an important part, but like, like you talk about in, in, in medicine that we would be best served by uh, maturing out of this mechanistic sort of approach to health. Oh, I need to just fix my gut or I just need to go to a therapist and deal with my trauma or whatever, right? Uh, we yeah. were talking about dental work earlier. It's like, oh, if I just fix my teeth, then everything would cascade down from that, which is partly true. But we're, we're physical beings, but we're also spiritual beings. And, and you don't have to you know, buy into any sort of religion or belief in God or any theology to know that. I mean, it's just common sense. Yeah. If one can disarm themselves from their intellectual pride for a moment and just go, wow, man, like, yeah. look at this body I'm in. Something's running this yeah. and, and it's more than just me. Yeah. I mean, it's the other day, man. I just, this never fails to amaze me. And I don't know why it still amazes me. 
I thought of someone randomly that I rarely talk to. I'm just like, oh, I wonder what, you know, I just kind of daydreamed about this person. Boom, text me. I mean, this stuff is happening outside of our awareness constantly. The synchronicity, the yeah. interconnectedness yes. that's so far outside of our limited sense-based perspective. Yeah. So if we can not come to our senses, actually come expand our senses, right? Yeah. And open up these different parts of our ourselves and, yeah. and become more fully um, integrated, yeah. you know? And it's, it's all... It's all part of the same goal, yeah. which is just becoming whole. And, and what are we all looking for? We're, we're looking for a sense of certainty. We're looking for a sense of safety. We want to know, know that we're okay. We want to know that those we love are okay. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that can be achieved solely on the physical plane because there are too many variables. Yeah. And when we, don't, when we don't have the understanding of the interconnectedness of it all, it's all too variable right? It just gets too scary. When you start to see, especially, you know, you've been around for a few years, you see, say you go through, you know, a, a tragedy, right? And it seems like just the end of your life. It's the worst thing that could ever possibly happen. You lost the job, the divorce, whatever, right? An illness even. And then if you um, are so inclined, you use that as an opportunity to grow and to evolve. And then some time goes by and you look back at that juncture in your life and you go, oh, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, being a drug addict was by far the best thing that ever happened to me. And also the worst thing at the same time yeah. because of the suffering that involved. Yeah. But the fruit that came from that experience and my dedication to you know, what I'm continuing to learn and, yeah. and then share with people like you and your audience is like, oh man, it was all worth it. It was all grist for the mill, as Ramdas like to say. <laughs> well, it's like that spiritual principle, that universal principle of out of the greatest darkness has the potential for the greatest light. And I, I think you're living proof of that. Like it's you're just emanating sort of this knowingness of this divine that you mentioned. The and I <laughs> the synchronicities, every day I see synchronicities, the smallest things, like there'll be patients on the schedule and they'll they will be people with the same birthday, three patients in a row, all scheduled separately. I could not pay attention to that. I just be, could go and be about my day. But to me, they're small little, I call it uh, God art. It's like little seams in the tapestry of life. That, and maybe it's meaningless to most people. But for me, the, this whole synchronicity of it, and there's obviously bigger examples than that, but just we, it's there for all of us to see, right? And not just synchronicities, but like you said, nature, seeing sunsets. And seeing that God art or feeling your heartbeat, I think these are glimpses of God's handiwork. Yeah, it's it's so crazy. It's like we're we're put here as as blind children. You know, <laughs> it's like our job here is to learn how to see, and yeah. we all have our own unique way of arriving yeah. at, at that. And and many of us don't. I mean, I know people that live God knows how many lifetimes, and they never have any inkling to learn yeah. how to see. And there are those of us, maybe people listening or people like you and me, they're like, no, I want to know. I want to know how does this work? What's going on here? Yeah. What's this all about? It's just ever fascinating. And I think that that childlike curiosity, I mean, this is one of my most cherished attributes. It's just, man, I, I want to know all the truth there is to know, but not know it so that I have an intellectual construct yes. that I can then egoically pontificate on, but I want to know it as in I want to experience it. Yes. I want to have yes. the most rich and full experience that I possibly can while I'm yeah. here. And that does require 
some inquiry, some practice in order to bring that about. Yeah, absolutely. My friend, this has been a rich conversation. As you know, the podcast is called The Art of Being Well. So I'm gonna throw a few different, I wanna pick your brain about different facets of wellness. First question is, what's the worst tasting healthy food that you still eat, but it tastes freaking Easy. disgusting? Uh, Grass-fed, raw beef liver. <laughs> so you do it raw? Yeah. How are you doing it? Well, I buy it at the farmer's market. Shout out to Richardson's Farms, regenerative, you know, organic operation. They sell it, uh, you know, you get a pound and they slice it up mm-hmm. and then it's frozen. And so I'll defrost and it's, I don't know how to describe it, kind of like, yeah, it looks like a, like a piece of ham you'd put in a ham sandwich, something like sliced thin like that. And then I dice it up when it's still frozen. It cuts very easily because I used to get like the big thick ones and mm-hmm. no knife is sharp enough, by the way, yeah. to like easily cut through raw liver, at least not my knives. So I dice it up into little cubes and then I kind of fell out of the habit. It was a good reminder because um, now I'm just taking the desiccated capsules at the moment. But on a good week, uh, yeah, I'll chop it into little cubes and then I kind of rotate it. I have my frozen few pounds in the freezer. I take one out, cut it up, then I put it in the in the refrigerator and then I just pop a few cubes in my mouth and don't breathe um, and, you know, wash it down with some raw milk or whatever. And those those are like my multivitamins. Love it. But every once in a while I get a whiff of it, right? You know, I, I breathe and then I can, my taste buds are alerted to what's happening. <laughs> um, I only wish, you know, uh, and I guess people living their natural life way would have this experience. I wish I had been acclimated to that strong flavor when I was a baby. Because I see, I have friends that feed their baby stuff like that and they love it. Yeah, me too. I'll just sit there and chew on raw liver. It's yeah. the best thing ever. Yeah. But just because they haven't learned that, ew, it's gross. Yeah, you know? and we've, then, we've been tainted by modern, yeah, modern life. Growing up on, you know, Captain Crunch or whatever. <laughs> Pop-tarts. Frosted flakes. Yeah. Hot pockets out of the microwave, you know, so of course liver tastes gross, but yeah, yeah. That, that would be, I think, probably the most nutritious okay. food that I take and also the one that is the least pleasant. Got it. So what are three, let's do, I, yeah, I know you take a lot. What are your three, if you had to say most influential, beneficial supplements that you take right now? Um, I would say magnesium and K2. Yeah, well, three is tough. I'm, I recently made a top 10 video and I couldn't even do it. I had, I had like five honorable mentions and it went up to 15, you know? Uh, yeah, I'd say, you know, I mean, I'm thinking about the things that are difficult to get from food that are really critical to your health. Um, I mean, I guess if you ate a lot of natto, you could get your K2, but that's, that's talk about another food that's difficult to eat, but really good for you. Yeah. Uh, magnesium K2, Man, I might have to say the uh, the Rosita cod liver oil. Yeah, that's well, like a the yeah the 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 retinol thing. I mean, you can get some of it from liver, depending on what your cows ate and mm-hmm. all that, you know. But um, yeah, man, if you like put me on a deserted island, those would probably be my three. Love it. And then after we're done, I'll be like, no, number three was actually this. But <laughs> and I don't take the cod liver oil every day, but definitely K two and magnesium. I'm on the daily. What's your what's the weirdest supplement that you take that you'd be like most out of the box surprising? Oh my god. Well, depends if we're talking about past or current. The weirdest supplement I've ever taken was drinking my own urine called <laughs> right. auto urine therapy, that, which is, that's a thing. Yeah, back in the late 90s or whatever it was. How know? was that? Uh, you know, it's actually I didn't notice a lot of benefit from it. Yeah. But it's it's truthfully, I mean it's not something I would do for fun, but it's not as <laughs> gross as it sounds. It's it's actually 
if anyone's ever had the Quinton Sea Minerals, that might be yes. my number four supplement. <laughs> it kind of just tastes like salty water. Yes. And well, I have put patience on that. And it's sterile. Sure. So, you know, it's not like eating your own poo or something. But um, I'm thinking about now. What's the... God, I have so many freaking things down there. What is weird? This is such a good question. Man, that is really, really difficult. It's probably some of... I, there's this company called uh, Wizard Sciences. And it's this guy, Ian Mitchell. I've interviewed him on my podcast, The Lifestylist. Throw that in there uh, a few times. And he makes all these different serums, uh, generally in an MC, like a C8, MCT, um, or sometimes olive oil with C60, this carbon 60. And he'll put, I mean, they're not that weird, but they're just, they're so effective and so awesome um, just for energy, essentially, and brain health. And he'll put other things in there like PQQ and... Mm-hmm. He just kind of makes these like magic potions and those ones are pretty trippy, especially the carbon 60 because it's just yeah. such a unique substance and it has so That's many different answer. uses. And yeah, I think like the most novel, it's not that out there, but it, it's pretty yeah. pretty cool what he's come up with. The combination of those things. Yeah. I love that. I have to check it out. Yeah. What's your, I know you do lots of biohacks, quote unquote, different other wellness tools. This is going to be hard for you. What are your three <laughs> favorite biohacks yeah we could do a tour of the house dude there's like 50 freaking <laughs> we'll things have in we'll have you back we'll do a part no two. you know um for sure ice baths i mean that's mm-hmm. every day non-negotiable when yeah. i travel i don't always do this but when i have the the gumption to do so i'll even check in my room unpack my bags and i take my carry-on to the ice machine and fill it up with ice and i'll do an ice bath i mean i'm like obsessed i have a morosco forge ice bath in the backyard in the summer here in austin i'm doing three or four a day it's just so freaking hot here. Uh, but I think for, for mood, um, I mean, obviously there's all the health benefits, inflammation, et cetera, but there's nothing that puts me in a better mood instantly than a nice bath. And also just learning how to regulate my nervous system, getting in really uncomfortable water and just seeing how fast I can totally surrender and relax to it. Mm-hmm. I think that's over the years, I've been doing it for so many years, probably the one thing that's given me the most resilience to stress. Mm. You know, someone almost hits you in your car. You open a letter from the IRS that has a scary number on it, that kind of shit. Mm-hmm. The wife says, hey, we need to talk, you know, <laughs> those type of things. It's just being able to breathe. It's like, I just go back to the ice. The cold is such a beautiful teacher. So that's, that's one. And then um, the infrared sauna. I have two of them. I'm, this, I'm actually getting a third one too, a barrel sauna, because I got to have one for the homies in the backyard. And it's a different kind of heat. <laughs> I'm a freak for saunas. But I've, I've been doing the infrared saunas for God, 25, no, probably more, wherever they came out. It might even be 30 years. So I have a, a one over there that I don't use as much because it takes longer to heat up and I just want to get in. Downstairs, I have one called a sauna space. Maybe I love sauna space. Yeah, Good. my friend Brian Richards designed yeah. those and they have incandescent red bulbs. And I got... They usually come with just four bulbs, but I had an extra set of four, so I have the eight bulbs in there now. And that thing just smokes you. I mean, you don't even have to preheat it, but I still do, and I get in there, and it's just, I am sweltering, just pouring sweat in the first two minutes. And uh, and I really like that because it also has the mitochondrial benefit of the red light. light yeah. And that red light really penetrates deeply with those incandescent bulbs. So I would be remiss. I don't think I could live without that thing, honestly. The ice bath, that sauna... Um, third one, I would say, oh man, it's kind of like what's top of mind. You know, I go through little phases. You know what I'm actually really digging right now is this thing. Have you ever tried the Lucia light? No. Oh, it's a hypnagogic light. 
It's around the corner over there. I did one this morning. I like to do, essentially, it's, it was designed by these Austrian. One of them is um, a neuroscientist and the other one's a psychotherapist. And they programmed this device that you lie under and they programmed all these various frequencies of flashing lights, essentially. Mm-hmm. And these lights, I don't know what exactly they're doing to your brainwaves, but I'm going to assume that you're probably producing a lot of gamma. I mean, definitely you're going into alpha. I mean, your brain is just lit up. And so you lay under that thing for 20 or 30 minutes. There's all these different programs and you do it with your eyes closed. Mm -hmm. And I typically will do my breath work or some kind of meditation um, under that thing. And uh, when you look at it from afar, it's just a bunch of like white flashing light. Mm -hmm. But when you lie under it, you have a full psychedelic um, fractal geometric experience. And so that's, that's probably my favorite way to just induce a quick state change mm-hmm. because it takes you really into the field of consciousness, into the quantum. You know, it's like, it, it's, it's so reliably just takes me out of that kind of fast beta brainwave yeah. thinking, doing things, what do I right. got to do, planning, executing a like I just go into that thing and it's like I just forget about everything. I forget I'm even in a body. You know, it's a it's a really profound and and brief experience and one that doesn't necessarily require a lot of integration time mm-hmm. versus, you know, if you work with psychedelics or something like that, you'd obviously have a much more profound experience than that typically. But it takes time out of your life and the set and setting and the care with which one, well, I would recommend the care with which one proceeds into altering your state in that realm, but it's a similar experience mm-hmm. with no risks, right? Got it. Um, so I like to kind of stack things with the Lucia light, whether it's a PMF mat or a number of different things. But I'd say the ice bath, the sauna, and and that light therapy. And there's even a, another one called the Neurovisor that, okay. that is just a wearable that's really cool. It's have you heard of Brain Tap? I feel like it's yeah, similar yeah. to yeah, that. Yeah, I like Brain Tap a lot too. Yeah. yeah. I, I use Brain Tap. Brain Tap, um, the lighting part of it is a little less sophisticated, well, quite a lot less sophisticated, but I like brain tap in that it has all of these affirmations and yeah. it's like a great way to reprogram your mind when it's in a really receptive brainwave state. Yeah. So yeah, similar to that. And, and there've been times where I do brain tap every morning for months. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm working on a particular thing, there was when I moved in this house, I had to pay for it. <laughs> so I was using all the, you know, the uh, finance, journeys on brain tap and stuff like that you know just getting in an abundance mindset and all this and it must have worked because i paid everything off okay you know (laughs) but yeah i I like ways that you can alter your consciousness with with little to no risk yeah and no side effects but i want to like get the big bang which the lucia light uh, reliably delivers yeah i will do that and i like that these are tools that people can get into like we're talking about this sort of other this higher level of thinking something greater than yourself. So what book-wise, like if someone that's curious about some of the things you were talking about, do you have any entry points that people to like learn more about spirituality and learn about the, some of the things you talked about? Oh, yeah. I mean, my all-time favorite teacher, I've gone through different phases with, with books and, and teachers. And, um, and it's been interesting to observe, like we were talking about Eckhart Tolle earlier, and there was a, quite a long period where like, I just listened to him all the time yeah. and read him all the time. And I just digested it and digested it until it became just sort of part of the fabric of my awareness. Yeah. 
Um, and then, I, I don't know, growing out of it isn't really the right term because it's just where to go. I outgrew Eckhart Tolle. I mean, his teachings are so profound. I don't yeah. know that one could outgrow it. Yeah. But I think you have different seasons, yes. right? Where something appeals to you for a period of time. Maybe it was Marianne Williamson or Wayne Dyer or, um, you know, Ram Dass, Alan Watts, right? All these, all these great teachers and orators. But the one that stuck with me for the longest um, is a, a man who's no longer alive called David R. Hawkins, Dr. Mm. David R. Hawkins. He's most famous, and this is where I want to recommend the books. He's most famous for a book called Power Versus Force. And that's the first one I read. However, it was, I don't find it to be very approachable and it's a bit dry. It's just clinical. or It's, just, it's hard to kind of like uh, sink your teeth into. But he wrote a number of other books uh, which are much more complex and maybe not a great entry point for someone's like, oh, I want to read a spiritual book. But those have been the ones for me that have like just continued to blow my mind and also listening to his lectures. And I used to go see him speak and I'll take a break and I'll think, okay, I kind of get his thing. This happens all the time for years. And then I go back and I read or I listen and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, holy shit. I hadn't even scratched the surface because his teachings are so profound. And essentially his teachings were uh, based in devotional non-duality. You know, but he's coming. He was a psychiatrist for fifty years, a brilliant man, so highly intelligent and very intellectual, but also deeply spiritual. And I would say, by our metric, an enlightened person. You know, mm-hmm. um, so the book that is, I think, the most accessible and maybe the most useful for people to start to explore him would be the one he wrote before he died, which was dramatically more accessible than anything he ever wrote, and it's called. Uh, letting go, I think it's called the power of surrender. Hmm. And in that book, there's not so much of the heady, like non-duality deep stuff that he was most known for. It was all about the importance of and the practical application of of how to really feel your emotions. Hmm. And it's all about surrender. And it's all, it's, it's the antithesis of spiritual bypassing, right? It's about like facing and feeling and in that book, relevant to our conversation, he outlines all of the, I think, most important fundamental spiritual principles mm. and dissects each and every one of them and explains what's, what they are and how to apply them to your life. Because he also came um, originally in part through the movement of the 12 steps. He was, oh, wow. he was friendly with the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson. And so he, he comes from that kind of perspective and then infuses non-duality. But David Hawkins... Letting go, I mean, profoundly powerful and really easy to read. And just, I have a hard time picturing anyone reading that and being like, I don't get it. You know, you read it and you're like, oh shit, yep, that's yeah, it. I you know, it. He just nailed it. And interestingly enough, it's my theory that he was quite old. I think he was 86 or something when he died. I have a feeling he knew he was going to leave and he wrote that book as a more accessible yeah. entry point into his Like if you get nothing else, get this. Yeah, because he could have written something for his last book that was way more complex and higher level, you know? Yeah. But he didn't. He wrote that. You almost read it and you're like, did he digress? Because <laughs> his last four books were way deeper and yeah. thick. I mean, I'm talking yeah. like long books just yeah. in the weeds of non-duality and just profound and potent teachings. And then he was like, all right, Here's a, here's a simple way to get into it. And that, that book is really beautiful. I love it. I always think of Jesus's words. He said, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law and prophets hinge on this. 
I think Rabbi Akiva around the same time said the same thing. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. All the rest is commentary. That's <laughs> so great. I think it, sum, it sums we up everything. We could have just said that in the <laughs> beginning and had a three-minute podcast. Like the rest is like interesting, fascinating, could be glimpses into yeah. a deeper knowing, but it's commentary. That's true. My friend, how, where, where can people go to learn about all, all well, the things of your work? I would say that the flagship bit of content in my world is my podcast, The Lifestylist. I'm having a hard time saying S's still because of some dental work. The Lifestylist. <laughs> and that's been going for six years and I've had all kinds of amazing people like you and Joe Dispenza and all kinds of hot shots in the realm of, of health and also spirituality and whatnot. Um, so that's just something I'm, I'm um, just continue to amazingly have passion to do. And then my website is um, lukestory.com, S-T-O-R-E-Y. And my Instagram is kind of my most um, active social media and that's at lukestory. Are you on TikTok yet? No, it's funny. I, I think when it came out, uh, I, I went to sign up and I couldn't get my name. You know, I was like, I had to do Luke Story 1 or something. I was like, eh, not doing it. <laughs> Screw it. Yeah, and then uh, <laughs> yeah, and then there was all this stuff that came out, like it's got spyware, and you oh, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Chinese are looking at your. I don't know how much of that's true, or whatever. <laughs> but I, my my wife Allison, often sends me really wild ass, um, you know, excerpts from her TikTok. She, I don't think she uses it, but she just looks at it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of interesting people on TikTok. I got to say, yeah. if you if you dive into, there's two areas into the spirituality, the esoteric alternative history, um, conspiracies, yeah. flat earth. Like there's all kinds of crazy ass, very interesting shit on t- TikTok. I think they've evaded censorship or something. Um, so I, I enjoy it as a, as a spectator because the stuff I see there is really wild. And what's interesting about it is very young people mm-hmm. talking about Atlantis and just <laughs> new agey, crazy stuff. Yeah. And some of it's probably true, some of it's not, but I, I think it's one of the more interesting yeah. social media platforms. It'll just be interesting to see where user. it goes because- Are you on there? I am, but I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Oh, okay. I think that was the other thing too. I couldn't figure out how to like make content on there. No, we same need- with Instagram Reels. I'm just, I get so frustrated. Like <laughs> everyone, you need to do Reels. I'm like, dude, I'm not a film editor. Like you know what I'm saying? I just pick up my phone. I'm trying to shoot something. But I'm 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 learning. But yeah, this has been great. You won't find me on TikTok, but definitely on Instagram. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, man. Great conversation. 